0: Open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2, and as you turn there, I'm going to pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the world that you have given to us. We're so grateful for your rule and your reign. Submitting to your will is a joy and a privilege. And we are grateful that you have called us to it. I pray that we do nothing that would spurn your kingship in our lives. That what we exude to the people around us is that we are people who submit to you through your word. And we live by the book. We pray that that would be true of us, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to open with reading Psalm 2, and then walk through what the passage is saying, and then what it actually means to us, especially in this day and age. So read with me Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we have read this text, you would open it before us. Open our eyes that we may see it. Open our mind that we may understand it. And open our heart that we may obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. There uh, may be no more timely of a passage to be talking about this morning than the one that is right before us. The irony is palpable because I'm standing here on a stage in a virtually empty room preaching to a congregation that is more or less homebound because of governmental orders. And so it raises a lot of questions in our minds as even as we read this passage from the outset, what does this passage mean to us now? How do we respond to the raging nation? Other more important questions that we have to get to by the end of this sermon. And so I hope that you can appreciate the timeliness of this passage that's before us. I also hope that you can extend to me a little measure of grace as I attempt to navigate these waters. Opinions of how the church should respond during the midst of this shutdown, let's call it that, are varied. Some argue quite convincingly that this is an example of government overreach and an infringement upon religious liberty, telling all people in all churches you have to stay home, no gathering of ten or more, that that's an overreach and and an infringement upon religious liberty that we've come to cherish and shouldn't take for granted. And so the recommendation then is that Christians should push back by continuing to meet together or whatever, Others, perhaps out of concern for their own health, or maybe out of concern for the health of loved ones that they take care of or visit regularly, or maybe it's out of just submission to the the governing authorities, believe that the church should exercise only the options that are available to them at the time. So like we've done online streaming, some churches have done the uh, drive-in church services and things like that. There are also many other opinions that fall in between those two polarities. Somewhere in between, I'm sure there's a a smattering of different approaches that people have in their minds, and all of those exist within our very own congregation. So no matter what, this sermon is likely going to dissatisfy some and it's probably going to upset some. So I hope that you can extend to me some measure of grace Even if you hear what I'm saying and completely disagree with me. I'm preaching the Psalms in order for the remainder of the summer. And Psalm 2 is the one on the docket this morning. So I didn't pick this passage. And although in some sense I guess I knew that Psalm 2 was there and was the second Psalm that we would come to. uh, It didn't occur to me until Monday of how deeply this applies to the moment that we're in right now. Nevertheless, as God's providence would have it, we're here with this passage as the psalmist deals with large-scale opposition of the earth's governments against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. So there are four scenes in this psalm where four different characters are speaking, or four different people in in the psalm are speaking. First, there is the pagan nations that we see at the very beginning, verses 1 to 3. Then the Lord speaks. Then the Lord's anointed speaks on behalf of the Lord. He tells us what the Lord has told him. And then there is the narrator who gives a final warning at the very end to these raging nations. And so let's consider each one in their context before we talk about where we go from here as a church body. So, four things the author makes clear in this psalm. First, pagans are inherently anti Christian, pagans are inherently anti Christian. So the psalm opens with this question that is assumed to be true of all Gentile nations. They plot, they scheme against the Lord and the Lord's anointed. Now, you may remember as I preached last week that both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 form an introduction for the whole Psalter that lays before you two paths to take. One is the way of righteousness, and Psalm 1 is focused primarily on that. There's the way of righteousness that you are to choose, and this is what it looks like when someone delights in the word of God and goes after, or delights in the Lord and goes after the way of righteousness, and he avoids then the other path, which leads by the way of the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer, and they are antithetical to the wisdom of the Lord completely. And the psalm ends with the wicked, it says, perishing in the way, or perishing in their wickedness. And the man who delights in the Lord is preserving through judgment. It says he's blessed. Psalm 2, then, is going to take Psalm 1 to a fever pitch, where the psalmist is showing how the plotting and the scheming of the wicked actually takes place. The author is going to come back to some themes that he's already brought up in Psalm 1. He's going to address those at the end of Psalm 2. But the first is the wicked, the scoffing, the sinner of Psalm 1 is here depicted as, the, as part of the nations as a whole. He's certainly called out in the midst of those nations, but he's depicted as the nations as the whole. This includes both the individual scoffers, the individual wicked and sinners, and the nations as a whole, which reject the authority of God, and they are sinful and raging nations. It says in verse 1, the nations rage, the peoples plot. So it's, there's individuals within there. There's everybody within that nation that's doing that. And then in verse 2, it's the kings of the earth and the rulers who are taking counsel and who are setting themselves. So basically, everyone whose delight is not in the Lord is in view here. Everyone who's the opposite of that wise man in Psalm 1 is in view here. What are they doing? They're setting themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. Now, the anointed Um, we will see more from later in the psalm. But we have to understand who this anointed person is. And although we don't have an inscription that this is from uh, the pen of David, we do have the apostle saying in Acts chapter 4 that this is a psalm of David. So we have it on good authority that this is a psalm of David, even though we're not told that from the beginning of the psalm. So the nations are raging against the king of the Davidic line or of the line of David, his, him and his sons that come after him. This is important because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David and to his sons to establish the throne from the line of David in perpetuity. God is speaking to David through the mouth of the prophet Nathan, and he tells David about his son in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12-13. to 13. It says this, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Incidentally, it so happens that on Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday on our our Zoom Bible study that we're doing now, uh, we will be talking about this passage just as providence would have it. We happen to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, when we come upon this. So if you have questions about this, Wednesday night would be a time where we're going to deal with this passage squarely. But for now, in the immediate context of this passage, Solomon is clearly in view. Solomon is the one who, uh, at least at first, God is talking about to David. Solomon was not only David's son and he would take the throne, but he's also going to build the first temple for the Jews in Jerusalem. But Solomon isn't the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. I mean, the promise isn't complete in Solomon. Because the promise was a forever kingdom. And Solomon died. The promise wasn't fulfilled in Rehoboam, in Abijah, in Asaph, and so on. All of them died. And all of their sons that sat on the throne then died. It's not until Jesus that we have the throne of David solidified with a kingdom. That shall not pass away, which is why Matthew opens his gospel with that long genealogy about being from the line of David. He is the son of David, and he sits on the throne. So we, with that, so that when we come to the book of Acts, we not only have the fulfillment of the promise to David in Jesus already revealed, but we also have the apostles who now understand that Jesus was the one that God was talking about there in 2 Samuel as the fulfillment. But then they read back into Psalm chapter 2 and explain to us what it means that the nations rage against the Lord and His anointed. It happens in Acts 4 where the authorities in Jerusalem, they had arrested Peter and John and they had told them that they weren't to go out speaking, to teach, you cannot teach or preach the name of Jesus, anywhere in the city. To which Peter and John respond, no, we're going to keep doing it. And the leaders threaten them some more. And then ultimately, let them go. And then it, they, they gather together and they pray, and they say this in Acts 4, 24 to 30. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plotted vain? The Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people's Of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So, Peter and the Apostles understand a few things about Psalm 2. And they make it abundantly clear in this passage, first, that Jesus is the anointed one from Psalm 2. They understand that, and they point it out very clearly, Jesus is the anointed one from Psalm 2. Second, the nation's raging, the people's plotting, the king's setting, and the rulers taking counsel together is ultimately seen in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and that was both on the part of the leaders and also the people themselves. Both of them coming together and crucifying Jesus. And that's, that's the culmination of that passage. And third, the nation's raging continues as the pagans and pagan authorities attempt to stamp out the witness of Christ there as John and Peter and the apostles are proclaiming the gospel there in Jerusalem. So back to Psalm 2, these people, these pagans, reveal their their plot. In verse 3, they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And the desire expressed here by the raging nations is to rid themselves of all of the Christian witness because they sense that in the gospel message there are moral restrictions placed on them and eternal consequences are there for the rejection of the Christian message. And so it's better, they think, to stamp out the witness of the Lord and His anointed and then all of those that would come after Him than it is to listen to it. So quite simply, their aim is to throw off any burden that God's Word would place on them. Do we see this today? But what we need to understand is that the raging nations and the plotting peoples depicted here isn't merely seen in the full-scale murdering of Christians. It's not only in the full-scale murdering of Christians or even in just the suffocating of religious liberty. Certainly that is an example of it. But that's not the only form it takes. It's also the outright rejection of the gospel by ordinary men and women on a daily basis. It's simply just rejecting the gospel as a whole. Why? Because you're rejecting Christ's reign over your life. And refusing to submit to His rule. So it's, it could be as strong as killing Christians all the way down to simply rejecting the gospel message as it pertains to your life in particular. Charles Simeon said it like this, It was the requiring of all persons to submit entirely and unreservedly to the dominion of Christ that irritated and inflamed the whole world against the preachers of Christianity. Thus, at this time, if we only brought forward the great truths of the gospel in a speculative or argumentative way, no man would be offended with us. Multitudes of preachers do this without exciting any hatred or contempt in the minds of their hearers. But, the practical exhibition of divine truth the showing that all men must receive it at the peril of their souls. The insisting upon an entire surrender of their souls to Christ, to be washed in His blood, to be renewed by His grace, and to be employed for His glory. This is the offense. So then all the rejection of the gospel... And all continuing of pagan practice, in spite of the clear teaching of Scripture, all wickedness and sinning and scoffing, all sinful practice by the unbelieving is in view here. Maybe it's on a small scale, an unbelieving father at his home sheltering his, sheltering his family from the hearing of the Gospel. Keeping them from church and keeping them from family devotions and keeping them from the reading of God's Word. It could be anything from something like that in a home to a, a large-scale government conspiracy to restrict the teaching of the church as we see in so many other places around the world. China, getting their power cut off in their Zoom meetings as they try to uh, talk together as a, as a church. We've seen Charles Spurgeon once said, We have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. Pagans are inherently anti Christian because they do not submit to Christ as king. However, second point, their agendas do not alter the plans of the Lord. Their agendas do not alter the plans of the Lord. The Lord responds to the plotting of the the kings, and it's really, in the passage, it's doubly humorous. First, he actually laughs at their plotting and their scheming plans. They're of little consequence to him and to his plans and what he aims to do to address it. The second second part of this that's humorous is that he places in, in, in the midst of the nations and the Gentiles and all of the pagan kings and rulers... All scheming and plotting against the Lord, the Lord not only laughs at them, but he takes a singular king and puts him on a singular hill. He has anointed this king and this place as his. And so this seems humorous because here the nations, the peoples, the kings of the earth, the rulers, they represent multitudes upon multitudes of people, and the Lord's response is both laughter and establishing the one king on one hill. The laughing that the Lord takes up here is, is a scoffing type laugh. It's the kind of laugh that southerners typically couple with uh, bless his heart, Right? the laughter followed by, bless your heart. Babylonian armies are described this way as in the book of Habakkuk as they come in and they're coming to to judge the nation of Israel. And the Lord says they laugh at castles of other nations. So it's that kind of mocking laugh. Well, aren't you cute kind of laugh. God does not tremble, but he also, you'll notice, does not pour out all the storehouses of his wrath all at one time, at least not initially and not all at once. I want you to think about this for just one second. Here is God sitting in the heavens, as opposed to the rulers who are on the earth. He hears their secret, what they think are secret whispers amongst themselves, about throwing off his rule and his authority, let's reject him, he, he's, he's antiquated, he doesn't have any say here, they want to reject his rule and his authority, and yet what does he do about it? Well, it would seem at first glance relatively little, almost nothing. And when we hear scoffing from other people in our lives, Are they immediately consumed with fire right there on the spot? No. In fact, many wicked people, raging nations, people that would fall into this category, are prosperous and successful. More successful than we are. Our lives, in our lives, He seemingly does nothing about it. Think about how many people have lost their lives throughout the millennia in service to God. The martyrs of Christianity for the last 2,000 years. God's action here at first blush seems to not be in proportion with the scheming and the plotting of the nations. Where is He, you might say? One guy on one hill? What's that going to do? The nation's plan to burst their bonds and and the Lord simply says that he's placing his king on his holy hill. Their agenda, no matter how big, how complex, doesn't alter his plans in any way. Because, point three, he has appointed his son to have ultimate authority. He has appointed his son to have ultimate authority. We have this third scene In this psalm, starting in verse 7, where the Anointed One now begins to speak. And the Anointed One tells everyone what the Lord has told him. The first thing that the Lord tells the Anointed One is, Today I have begotten you. Now many have suspected that this psalm functioned in Israel's history as a coronation psalm. Like that David, as he took the throne, this psalm was read out, today I've begotten you, that he would defeat his enemies and those kinds of things. And that every son after David, as they take the throne, would be crowned and this psalm would be read that you were now the son of God, you are Uh, You you were coronated. You had now taken the throne and you were now not only the son of David but also the son of God. Now whether it was ever used that way actually or not, we don't know. But what does seem evident is at the point when David's son is crowned king, uh, he is seen by the nations as not only the son of David but also the son of God. Well, the New Testament authors as they apply this passage, Psalm 2, to Jesus, the ultimate son of David, they all point to one and the same crucial event that demonstrates that Jesus has the same kind and even surpassing ultimate authority that the sons of David had. Paul, in Romans 1, to 3-4, says this concerning his son, "...who descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord." Paul in the book of Acts, he's actually teaching in the book of Acts, and Luke records it for us in thirteen thirty three. He says, "This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus." As also it is risen, written in the second Psalm, "You are my son; today I have begotten you." The author of Hebrews extends this to not only include the resurrection but the ascension of Jesus in Hebrews one three to five, where he says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact same. The exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then in Hebrews 5, 5, he says, so also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made high priest, but He was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. But then last, and certainly not least, perhaps even foremost, Jesus says, following His resurrection, in a passage you're all too familiar with, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The New Testament is unanimous. Not that Jesus became the Son after the resurrection, but that his sonship was declared openly to the nations by God himself when God raised him from the dead. It was a declaration, this is my son and I have begotten him and he has all power and authority. Do you notice Jesus in the gospels keeps all the demons quiet about him being the son of God. He shuts them up because it's not it's not for them to declare to the nations that Jesus is the Son of God. It's for God the Father to do, and He's going to do that at the resurrection. The New Testament is unanimous that that's what's happened in the resurrection. By virtue of his resurrection, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father who is making the nations his heritage and continues to bring Gentiles and pagans who have once cursed the name of Christ. Those same warring nations, those same raging nations, those same ones that are plotting to throw off his bounds on them, to the same ones that are rejecting his rule and authority, he is now through the gospel bringing in submission to himself. The right to rule the world belongs exclusively to Jesus Christ. As the gospel is proclaimed through the world, men and women who have once refused now bend their knee in submission to Christ through confession and repentance of sin. So through the Gospel, Christ is demonstrating His reign over the earth. Because as you share the Gospel, and that person who two seconds ago was warring against God, hears and believes, now bends his or her knee in submission to God. Christ is demonstrating His rule and His reign. And so the reason that the Lord laughs in the heavens as the nation's plot and scheme, is because the singular Son that He has set upon His holy hill conquered sin and death. The singular Son that He put on His hill conquered sin and death, the two greatest enemies of His people. And as pagans submit to his rule, he extends to them, to you and me, the same ability to conquer sin and death. And it's evident since the establishment of the church that the pagan nations that seem to be under the control of the rulers and the authorities will steadily stream in to Zion to receive so great a salvation. And they have ever since Christ left. They have continued to stream in. So what are the plotters and the schemers and the rulers of the world going to do? The power over the grave is evident in Christ and all those that follow after Him. Power and authority has been given to Him. All of the people that they would hold under their thumb Are streaming to Zion's Hill at the proclamation of the gospel. What power do they have? What real power do they have to exercise over people? If he wants the hearts of men, he'll have them. What authority do they have? There will be a day when those nations are judged. There really is no laughing. When they're brought to before the throne of God and and they're judged, which is the final point, submission to Christ's authority is the basis of the Lord's judgment. Submission to Christ's authority is the basis of the Lord's judgment. The narrator takes over again here in verse 10 with a, a word of warning to these schemers, the kings and the rulers. He says, Kiss the Son... Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Now you remember, just all, you can just look back up in Psalm one, verse six. Just go right back up to Psalm one, verse six, and the psalmist says this: For the Lord knows the way of the wic- of the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, as it turns out, the way of the wicked that perishes in Psalm one, he says there at the end of uh, in, in verse ten. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. The way of the wicked will perish. You perish in the way. It turns out that that perishing in the way, what that is, is a rejection of the Lord's anointed. A failure to kiss the son in Psalm 2, a failure to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. So basically, what David has done here is that he has made the determination of your eternal judgment squarely on how you respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether David knew he was writing that or not, the Holy Spirit has inspired it. Such is the nature of prophecy. How you respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the determination of judgment. What judgment looks like for you. Make no mistake about it. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God remains on you, as John three thirty six clearly says. The wrath of God is stored up for you on judgment day. But listen, the hand of Christ is available for you to lay hold of even now by confessing Him as Lord and submitting to His rule over your life. But see, the hands of Christ are not like a king's hands that are hidden behind gloves. His hands are pierced. His feet are not only dirty, but they're also bloodied. His face is available for you to kiss. That same face has been slapped and mocked and crowned with thorns. The anointed one of God is not only king, but suffering servant. He suffered the wrath of God for His people on the cross. So, it is available to you now to confess Him as Lord and submit to His rule at this very moment so that you won't face the wrath of God on Judgment Day. Christ will have already faced it for you. So then that's it, right? We all submit to Christ and His rule and Who really cares about anybody else? You want to say something to me? If you want to have some authority over me, sorry. You can head that way with the rest of the raging nations because I submit only to Christ. That's not quite that simple. In fact, this is where it gets tough. Because although Christ has the right to rule by virtue of his resurrection he has also deputized secular government to have some measure of authority and control. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 13-17, "...be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people." Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Paul tells us in Romans 13, 1-2, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul tells Titus in Titus 3, 1-2, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to uh, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So it's not as simple as, as now saying, well, since Christ has been raised and exclusively has the right to rule, I have no authority but Christ, so you can't tell me anything. In fact, we're actually told quite frequently in the New Testament That by virtue of Christ's resurrection, we are to submit to human authorities who God has placed over our head precisely because He has the right to rule and reign. He has placed them over our head. Submitting to them is submitting to His rule and reign. But that's not the only place. It's not just governing authorities. There's lots of places where we now are free in Christ to submit to people He's put over us. The New Testament tells us wives to husbands, children to parents, congregations to elders, and everyone, everyone, to rulers and authorities. So we have to submit to them because we're claiming that we submit to Christ. And if we're claiming we submit to Christ... Then we're recognizing the rulers and authorities as instituted by him because only he has the right to rule and only he could put them in that place of authority and privilege. So if he has told us to submit and we rebel instead, we're not rebelling against those authorities, we're rebelling against Christ. And while we think that that's putting us on the path of the righteousness, it's putting us on the path of the wicked. And in the, all the while, we're claiming that that's the righteous path because we're following Christ, when in reality, we're walking a path of wickedness and we don't even know it. So that brings us to today. You're at home, and I'm preaching to a camera. On April 4th, twenty twenty. 5 p.m., Governor K.I.V. Ivey put in place a stay-at-home order for all except for essential activities, quote-unquote. So let me tell you, when that happened, just to be real personal here, what frustrated me about all of that, the whole situation, not particularly at the governor per se, but just about the whole situation in general, because this was... What happened in Alabama is happening all over the nation at the time. On March 15th, we canceled our first worship service. It was with great agony I was trying to make this decision on the phone with several doctor friends of mine talking about the ramifications of this and what we should do and ultimately decided Saturday evening, March 15th, to, to cancel services. The following day, after having canceled the service, the Target parking lot was packed. And it has been every day since March 15th. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that there's no contagion that you can catch in church that you can't also catch at Target. So the frustration was, well, maybe we should just have church in Target, because apparently it's an immune, uh, immune from coronavirus. So we should just have church in the aisles of Target, maybe, I don't know. Then the other thing that sort of upset me, not going to lie, is what constitutes essential business and operation. In section two, item F of Governor Ivey's order under essential retailers is listed liquor stores. There happens to be one across the street. Perhaps we could occupy it on a Sunday morning and change spirits to holy spirits. I don't know, for the Sunday morning. But then also after that, now that we've had some time to sit in this for a little while, subsequent evidence is starting to come out. We're starting to hear contravening evidence that's just been kind of put in our face a lot, suggesting that perhaps this coronavirus isn't nearly as deadly as all the reports initially said. There's now reports coming out of people having this long, uh, for, a, for a long time, before it was ever known that many, many, many more people have it than we ever thought, then there was, at the beginning, this death rate that was given to us uh, that was astronomically high and scared everyone half to death, but they didn't know what, how many people actually had it. So if you don't know how many people had it, you can't establish a death rate at all because you need a denominator, and we didn't have a denominator, but we were hearing this death rate that was crazy high. The other part of this is if the flu was put under the microscope and analyzed every year like the coronavirus has been, we would all be scared to leave our homes, because obviously the flu kills a lot of people every year and it would terrify us to no end if we were to see that. On top of all that, if that's not enough, we are living in a highly partisan country where we have not only our our people deeply red or deeply blue, but we also have a media that's more or less vitriolic towards the leadership that's in charge. And so when you put those things together what you tend to get is either terrible information or misleading information or a combination of the two, which doesn't put us in a great situation. So, how do we deal with all that? How do we respond to all of that? Those arguably draconian measures, government being over the top of us, kind of draconian measures, what are we to do with all of that? Submit. Now, I realize that that word is practically a curse word in our culture today. We have a rebellious spirit in us by virtue of the fall anyway. But the word submit is not at all popular in our vernacular. So I realize that just by saying that word, there's probably some people out there that I offended. And I didn't mean to offend you. I'm just trying to follow the word of God and what it says. And I want to give you some reasons why I think submission is what we do to the governing authorities that are over the top of us. First of all, the Bible doesn't give us an out for government stupidity And terrible information. If that even is what's going on. I'm not saying that necessarily is what's going on. But if that was what's going on. The Bible still doesn't give us an out. When your government is being stupid. And when there's terrible information. Mind you. The people that wrote. Submit to the government. Were being persecuted by the government. And were ultimately going to be killed by the government. Both Peter and Paul. If it did give us an out. For government stupidity and bad information. We probably never would submit. It wouldn't mean anything then. Because I've never in 36 years, of going on 37 years of life, I know that's not that long, but I've never looked at the government and said, man, they are really brilliant. They're on it today. Ever. But the reality is it's not called submission because you agree. It's called submission because you disagree. It's assumed that you disagree when you submit. And if submission to Christ is seen in our submission to those that he has empowered, then if we're to rebel, it better be in accordance with his word or else we're walking the path of the wicked as I've already said in Psalm 1. Instead, let's delight in his word and trust it that it's for our good. The second reason I think submission is where we're at at this moment. The government action has thus far talking about in Alabama, stuff that would actually pertain to us. I'm not talking about California or New York. I'm talking about here locally, the the rule and authority that is actually over us. Thus far, it has not been an attempt to stamp out the witness of Christ or persecute religion like the raging nations and the plotting people that we see in Psalm 2. Do they see Christian worship as essential? Absolutely not. Do they understand its effect on Christians coming together and meeting together? Absolutely not. Is our church, is Christianity in the crosshairs of the government of Alabama or the government of Tus- Tuscaloosa? No. Now, some states it has been, it has been close, and it, is, it has crept up there to put them in the crosshairs. Mississippi just recently had its little thing, and Louisville that I know of had, had something in Kentucky. But both of those, the churches went through the courts, and the courts overturned that and allowed the churches to meet, and I think that was through a drive-up thing that they were doing. Religion on the whole, and particularly in Alabama, is not in the crosshairs of the stay-at-home orders. Whether they have bad information and whether they're thinking rightly about the coronavirus or not is another issue. But whether they, but them taking that information and saying this is our chance to really shut down churches, I don't think that that's what's going on, and I don't think that was their intention. Now, when a goal to stamp out the worship of God becomes clearer, then the orders from the government to stay at home become dubious. Because what now is true is that they are trying to stamp out Christian worship, in which case they have subverted the authority of Christ, or tried to. They have now tried to cast off the bonds. They have now become those warring nations. They have tried to overstep their bounds and taken, taken, or stepped outside of their God-given authority. And at that point, then Christians are responsible to disobey. The other part of this, third reason that I think we should continue to submit, is I have to be careful. You are God's sheep. You're not mine. You're God's. And that's a big deal to me because I'm going to have to answer for that because I've been appointed to oversee you. And I'm going to have to answer for all of you on Judgment Day. And I take that very seriously. So if there's ever going to be a time where I put a congregation in the crosshairs of the government, I better have good reason, good biblical reason to do so. There are biblical reasons to do so. Just don't think we've hit those yet. And I'm ultimately going to be the one that answers for it. So the challenge to you, three groups out there as I see it, the ones considering a rebellion, you, you need to wrestle with how quiet the Bible is when it comes to when you should rebel and how often it reiterates to you that you need to submit. That's in all walks of life, and there's, be it your job, your marriage, your wherever, but not least of which governing authorities. The Roman government was far worse, and still the apostles are reiterating to us Submit. To the ones out there who are thinking persecution of the church will never come in my lifetime. Persecution of the church will never come in my lifetime. I'm going to ride this whole gravy train of America out and my kids can deal with whatever happens next. Wake up. I hope you're seeing how quickly things can change. Though I don't think we've gotten to the point of religious persecution yet. I don't think we've gotten there. At the same time, I would say, look how quickly things changed. And it it wouldn't be hard for them to take the next step in your lifetime. So the reality is that we've often thought about America as I'm going to ride this gravy train out and I'm going to live in the lap of luxury and and I'm going to look optimistically at America as if we're going to endure all the way until after I'm dead, until after I've lived in retirement and I'm dead. And the, the thought that you could be optimistic about America's future without the vast majority of America bending the knee to Christ is asinine. How can we possibly think that way anymore? That we can sit at home and not share the gospel and not place on people the importance and the urgency of bending your knee to Christ's rule now. How could we possibly be optimistic about America's future after that? You need to wake up. You don't live in the new Jerusalem. You live in Babylon. Babylon and you need to act like it. Last group that's out there probably is the ones that are worried, even slightly, about how all of this is going to pan out. For one reason or another, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's worry about what's going to happen. Maybe you are worried about persecution coming down the pike. Maybe you are worried about Coming back to church services, and is the virus really as threatening as people say it is? And you know, on and on your worry goes. But the point is, you're worried. Don't be. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He has set his son on his holy hill. And his son has conquered sin and death for us, even in the worst case scenario. This is worse than the Black Plague. We're with him forever, and that's not bad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we contemplate what we're going to do in all of this, you would give us wisdom. I'm sure that there are people that were offended by things mentioned today, and I pray that you would take away that offense. I pray you would confront us all with the word of your scripture, that you would convict us and make us happy to live under it, knowing that we may not get a voice right now. That we may not get anyone in the here and now pleading our case, but trusting that we will one day. And that the one pleading our case will be your son. And that's enough. That's enough. If that's all I ever get, It's more than enough.